Would you ever confidently tell someone they should not get a divorce? Ask yourself that question. Think about it in your own mind. Would you ever confidently tell someone they should not get a divorce? How should Christians respond to options of divorce and remarriage? Lawmakers in the late 1960s were unwilling. In the summer of 1969, California enacted the first no-fault divorce statute into law, and since then, all states have enacted similar legislation. The word of the person who wants the divorce alone is enough, even with no proof of wrongdoing. Before so-called no-fault divorce took root in the United States, Jesus dealt with similar legal attacks on marriage in his own day. What would Jesus say about divorce and remarriage? Well, he has much to say, but he says it all in just two verses. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We get to hear these two verses Jesus speaks about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. This will be our passage today. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be some Bibles under the seats in front of you. It could be found on page 810. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 31 32 says this. This is the Word of the Lord. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's the word of the Lord. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave. It's the most well-known sermon. It's actually the most commented upon portion of Scripture in all of church history. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's a three-long-spanning section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave this on a mountain. His disciples were nearby. And it's a sermon by Jesus that serves as a kingdom manifesto. It's a sermon that is, is in reality a charter of instruction for heavenly citizens as they're sojourning on earth. It's for heavenly citizens of a heavenly kingdom, how they are to live. And it describes the ways that holiness is operative. It describes the ways that we display loyal obedience to Christ's authority. And here we come to kingdom instruction on marriage and divorce. Why is Jesus talking about marriage and divorce? Well, this is part of a, a law section, a legal section of the Sermon on the Mount. If you put your eyes back in the passage for a moment, the way 31 begins, it was also said, 
And the way verse 32 begins, but I say to you, that's been the pattern that Jesus used back in verse 21, verse 27, verse 33, verse 38, verse 43. This is a section where there are six statements about the law being made. The first two are about Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus traced back their misunderstandings of those Old Testament commands to the heart. And he said, you who pat yourself on the back because you're not murdering anyone, wait a minute. You're not even supposed to be angry with another in your heart. You're not supposed to call others names to insult them. You're not supposed to harbor anger because that root of anger in your heart is the same root that leads to murder. And then Jesus moved to talking about lust. And he said, you've heard that you shall not commit adultery. And he goes after any who would think that they are self-righteous or they're keeping the command because they haven't physically committed adultery while their heart harbors rampant lust. And Jesus shows them that it's about the heart. So Jesus has been continually exploding their bad misinterpretations of his law. And he's doing that again here. And he just got done talking about adultery and lust. Now he moves into the arena of physical adultery. It's not only a matter of a heart. Adultery can happen physically, outwardly, beyond just the heart. And that's where Jesus takes aim today. This is a hard word, but it's useful. Who is this passage for today? Is it for those who are single and unmarried before marriage? Is it for those who are engaged, fiancés, those about to be married? Is this for those who are happily married but naive? Is this for those who are unhappily married, tempted towards divorce? Is this for those who are divorced? have been divorced? Is this for those who are remarried? Is this for widows? The answer to all of that is, what do you think? Yes? All right. So let's pause. Before we get into a very weighty and difficult topic, if you can't track with me on this particular point, you're not going to find much in the sermon for you. So let's just pause. Is this passage really for everyone? Singles, unmarried, divorced, widowed, remarried, happily married, engaged. If you say yes, how do you know? Go ahead right now in this moment and look at somebody next to you and tell them through your mask, how do you know this is for everyone, this passage? Go ahead, take a a stab, try. Okay. Strangely enough, we're talking about divorce, which is one of the most gut-wrenching aspects of life, but many of you were smiling as you were just talking to the person next to you. Um, I don't know how confident you were in saying why this is a passage for everyone. Divorce is not a, a laughing matter, but I do want to show you that this really is for everyone before we get into it, and it's all from verse 19. Look back at Matthew 5, verse 19. The sharp and bold words here have something personal for all Christians. Consider, Jesus intends for you to teach this to others. Matthew 5, 19, it says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's how we know this is for everyone. You are meant, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you are meant to take the instruction today about divorce and remarriage and not simply just agree with it or ask yourself, am I at risk for divorce? You are supposed to take this truth and actually teach it to others as occasion requires. Whether that's family, friends, co-workers within the church, you are to teach this to others. And if you do, that's the path of kingdom greatness. So I want all of us to listen in and, and learn in our study today of these two verses. Because you're meant to teach this. And Jesus desires that of you. Not, not just me or this church. Jesus desires you to teach it. So that question we began our time with this morning, would you ever confidently tell someone they should not get a divorce? The answer should be, yes, you should be prepared to do that. And this passage will equip you for obedience to Christ. So this passage is for everyone. And while it may seem harsh and too restrictive at first, meditating on this text you begin to see what Jesus is doing, and it is powerful. Before we unfold this two-verse compact section, here's the, the main thrust of the passage. And consider how encouraging this is. Here, here's the main thrust. This is a paragraph of thought, by the way. It's not just one sentence. Here's the main thrust of the passage. Jesus is doing something powerful here. He is upholding the sanctity of marriage. He's holding marriage in high esteem. He's taking off the table any small and puny and trivial and frivolous, frivolous bad, bad thinking, bad reasoning, short-sighted, false, unbiblical reasonings for divorce. He's taking them all off the table. He's protecting marriage and making us wise. Jesus is strengthening marriages by teaching this. This is good. This is helpful. It is intense. It is exclusive. But it's good and right and true. And the immediate effect of this teaching would be to equip kingdom citizens to teach others the immediate effect of it would be to inoculate his kingdom citizens against any false views and false practice of divorce and remarriage. There is so much good in this passage, so don't see it as just a downer passage, something discouraging. See this as something that can re-script your thinking and equip you to live a life of obedience to the Lord and encourage others to live a life of obedience to the Lord. Because as we'll see in a little bit, marriage has always been meant for something much larger than just one human man and one human woman in their own marriage. It's, it's always pointed to and meant and represented something much greater. So let's get into this. Let's break down these two verses in a way that we can digest it. Jesus is esteeming marriage here by teaching about divorce. And maybe that sounds counterintuitive. 
He's highly esteeming marriage by teaching about divorce. Four times in these two verses, the word divorce shows up. And Jesus, of all the principles and implications that flow out of this passage, we're just going to examine two principles today, two truths that seem to be the most clear. Two truths, two principles, and here they are. These will be the the two points of the sermon. The first principle, the first truth that is clear from this text is this. The grounds for a legitimate divorce are not wide, but extremely narrow. That's the first truth, the first principle. The grounds for a legitimate divorce are not wide, but extremely narrow. Emphasis on extremely narrow. The second principle, the second truth that we're going to look at is that illegitimate divorce. Let me, let me pause and just define what I mean by illegitimate. You could use some synonyms like no-fault divorce, casual divorce, easy divorcism, no biblical grounds type divorce. That's what I mean by illegitimate divorce. Second, second truth, second principle, illegitimate divorce is not a solution Rather, it incites more sin. So, truth one: the grounds for a legitimate—excuse me—the grounds for a legitimate divorce are not wide but narrow. And then, truth two: illegitimate divorce is not a solution. You could even make it more intense and say it is never a solution. Illegitimate divorce. Rather, it incites more sin. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Those are two principles that come from the text. I want to show you how that's coming from the text, and it's not just my own idea. There are more principles than these. But let's walk through these. You're going to be helped to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24. So go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 24. It is very difficult to understand this passage if you've never heard of Deuteronomy 24, you've never looked at it, you've never understood it. So here we are in the first truth, the first principle. The grounds for legitimate divorce are not wide, but extremely narrow. If you're looking at Deuteronomy 24, you're in the right place. I'm going to read again for us Matthew 5, verse 31, and it's going to be parallel with Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. So if you're at Deuteronomy 24, look at verse 1. That's where we're going to be. Matthew 5, 31 says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate a divorce. Where does that come from? Well, you're already there. You're already there. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That sounds like a very wide, easy path for divorce. But I want to show you that what Jesus says, and even what Deuteronomy 24 says, actually presents a, a narrow path, not a wide path for divorce. This 
passage, Deuteronomy 24, that you're looking at right now, 24.1, this is what was quoted in Jesus' day. It was quoted often. Look with me. Let's look at Deuteronomy 24.1. We're not going to read several verses, just the, the beginning. It says this. This is the Mosaic law. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, let's just stop there. Let me summarize. It then goes on to say what happens if she meets another man and gets married, and he either divorces her or he dies. The passage goes on to say that this woman cannot be reunited with her first and former husband ever again. It's a very sober section of the Mosaic law. And Jesus addresses a contemporary controversy in his own day about this passage, namely how Jewish teachers at the time understood that phrase, some indecency. Look again at that word there in Deuteronomy 24, 1. Some indecency. Bible scholar Andrew Nacelli wrote down that the phrase there translates in English as the, quote, the nakedness of a thing. If you were to take the Hebrew language there and translate it in the most wooden, literal way possible into English, it becomes kind of this stumbling phrase, the nakedness of a thing. And it's plausible that this means some type of of uncleanness, that phrase meant some type of uncleanness, a, a problematic sexual uncleanness. Another Bible scholar, D.A. Carson, notes that the word here, that word for indecency that gets translated, the word form is found in only one other place in the Old Testament where it refers to human defecation. This word is not referring to adultery. We know that because where you are in Deuteronomy 24, if you just glance around a little bit, Deuteronomy 22 talks about adultery. If adultery is found in Old Testament Mosaic law, what would happen? Death. The adulterer and the one who laid with the adulterer, both of them, would be put to death. Adultery was was not tolerated in any way. Leviticus 20 says the same thing. The penalty for adultery was death. So Deuteronomy 24.1 that you have in front of you at this moment is not the same thing as indecency. It's not the same thing as adultery. Rather, it's, it's some form of uncleanness, and it's unclear what it is. But what is clear is that Deuteronomy 24.1 was an exceptional thing under the law of Moses. It wasn't a wide angle, a wide path for divorce. It was very narrow, very exceptional. And by Jesus' day, it was taught that any imperfection in a wife, even something as trivial, you may have heard this before, even something as trivial as serving her husband food accidentally burned 
would fit into Deuteronomy 24 some indecency. Deuteronomy 24 is not talking about a wife burning food. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, 531, said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is not saying that because that's what he endorses. Yeah, I endorse your bad thinking of Deuteronomy 24. Jesus quotes that just to bring everyone up to speed on what the common thinking of the day was. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. They would have heard that as a, as a summary of the Mosaic law. And in Jesus' day, it was thought of kind of like this. Imagine if you wanted to sell your house, and you talked to somebody about selling your house, and you just said, yeah, I'm thinking about selling my house. And the person you were talking to just said back to you, well, you know, if you're selling your house, just put a for sale sign in the yard. The market's good. Nobody needs to know the reason why you're selling your house. If you want to sell your house, just put a for sale sign in the yard. That's the step to selling your house. No questions asked. We don't need to talk about anything else. That's how divorce was talked about in Jesus' day. If you want to get a divorce, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You know what to do. And here, Jesus is against that. Jesus is against that that wide, any reason whatsoever thinking. He advocates a narrow path, and we, we know that because of what he's going to say in verse 32. But before we leave Deuteronomy 24, I can't help but telling you this, because this encouraged my heart. When I was looking at Deuteronomy 24, even here when Jesus says a certificate of divorce can you hear how even that language of certificate of divorce would help mitigate rampant and chaotic divorces? Deuteronomy 24.1 is this, this dam holding back the floodwaters of hard hearts. It caused divorce even in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day. Divorce would be a public thing. It couldn't be this thing secret on the side and hidden it was public. A certificate was involved, a legal certificate. A man couldn't frame a woman and kick her out of the house and, and say, we're divorced, and she goes to be with another, and then he frames her for adultery. No, if he's going to make that move and cast her out of the house, there's an official statement that he would have to do, their certificate. But sadly, in Jesus' day, that certificate was given for any reason. It was intended as a reverse of Deuteronomy 24, which was meant to narrow the reason someone could even pursue divorce. Perhaps the Deuteronomy 24 law had something to do with bearing children and offspring and some, some problem found, some indecency found, some health reason found. We don't know. It's not clear. But again, it was given not as a provision for wild and wide divorce for any reason. It was given to narrow and limit divorce. A few verses later in Deuteronomy 24, the scriptures in the Mosaic Law would even say, if a man is newly married, he should be free from any public duty. He shouldn't even go to war. He should be free to be at home for a year with his wife, whom he loves. The scriptures are pro-marriage. The scriptures uphold marriage. 
So we should never think or be confused that there would be a place in the Old Testament that would somehow say, well, marriage doesn't matter. You can get divorced for any reason. And Jesus snatches up that passage that was so commonly talked about, so commonly misunderstood, so commonly twisted. He snatches it up and says it in Matthew 5, 31. If you can understand all of that, you now understand why Jesus began his teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount that it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate. You can see now how he's grabbing that Old Testament truth that has been twisted. And we know from 1 Timothy 1.8 that it says the law is good and it is good if one uses it lawfully which implies that there will be those that because of hardness of heart will actually twist the law and look for nuances and look for loopholes that go against the intention of the reason the law was even given in the first place. We know without a shadow of a doubt, God hates divorce. We know that. Deuteronomy 24 is not the only place we can look to see it. Something like Malachi 2, 15 and 16 says this, Guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The entirety of the Old Testament and the entirety of the New Testament never present a a wide flood of options for getting a divorce. The scriptures limit everything down to something so specific. And we'll see in a moment, even when it's legitimate and possible, it's never required. It's never strongly encouraged. It's simply permissible. And we're going to look at some of the ways it's permissible. The grounds for legitimate divorce are not wide, but they're narrow. We see that from Jesus' own lips, not merely the Old Testament, but look how verse 32 begins. But I say to you, beginning of 32, Jesus doesn't follow the divorce loopholes that the culture promoted. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except And then does he give four or five things there? No, one thing. Except on the ground of sexual immorality. Jesus is narrowing the path. He only gives one exception clause here. By saying there's only one exception here, he's showing how narrow the road is, how limited the grounds might be. What is it? that causes the human heart to look for all kinds of reasons to pursue divorce. Jesus doesn't even bother saying what all the bad reasons are. He simply says what one exception clause is. And again, he takes off the table all the other bad reasons. Think to yourself, have you ever heard someone talking in a restaurant and you overhear it? Have you ever heard somebody say this on a movie? Have you ever heard a couple say this? Maybe your parents have said this. Maybe you've thought or said this to your spouse. Or maybe you've joked or talked about someone else in this way. Ask yourself if you've ever heard these kind of phrases, these bad reasons to pursue divorce. 
we lost our spark. They're not attractive to me anymore. We have different personalities. We have different interests. They're boring. They don't like my friends. They don't like my family. They don't buy me enough extra stuff. They're, they're having health problems. It's too hard to care for them. It's too, it's too difficult. They want me to get a divorce because of how hard it is to care for them. Those are all bad reasons for divorce. Jesus doesn't give any of those extra reasons here for divorce. We should note, though, that, that abuse, resources taken away in such an abusive way, some kind of violent abuse where there's, where there's harm, whether it's theoretical, actual, or threatened, that kind of harm does warrant levels of intervention. So notice what Jesus is not saying here. Because for safety and and intervention to step in and separate two in some sort of watch care coming alongside those who are in great difficulty and the messiness of divorce, temporary separation that's contained in a in a framework of time to make progress, to evaluate, to help care, is not the same thing as casting away a spouse and getting a divorce. It's not pleasant, but it is necessary to assess how we care for those who are struggling in the midst of divorce. You may have questions about, what if my spouse has gone to prison? What if they're away in the military, and they're away for a long time, and we don't have any communication at all, and I don't, I don't know what they're doing. What if, what if there's alleged infidelity, but it's, but it's unproven, and I can no longer trust them? I don't, I don't think I can be around them. The cases can be complex, but Jesus here only gives one exception clause. He narrows the road. For us to walk in faithfulness, when we think about divorce and marriage, remarriage, It's important for us and vital for us to discuss these type of complex situations in the community of our church. With pastors, with trusted church members. Things get very messy. And things get so messy that we need the clear principle, the clear truth Jesus says here in verse 32. I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus only gives one exception clause here. Jesus doesn't want you to think no-fault divorce is okay. If any kind of divorce was somehow valid, any kind of certificate, any kind of bill of divorce was valid, then Jesus' words would make no sense in verse 32. Because if a marriage bond had been dissolved, he wouldn't need to say except on the ground of sexual morality. He wouldn't need to say that anyone who divorces his wife, and then goes on to say, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, if any reason for divorce was valid, he he wouldn't need to say that. Can you see how implicitly Jesus is saying, not all claims to divorce are valid. Not all certificates and bills of divorce actually mean that there's been a, a true divorce.
This is a narrow path. In fact, the path is so narrow that later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus repeats this exact same phrase that he does in verse 32. He repeats the same phrase, and his disciples respond with, if that's the case, it seems like it'd be better not to marry. You mean the bond of marriage is so strong, so exclusive, that we can't just get out of that covenant when things seem to be going bad for any reason? The religious leaders of the day taught that you could get out of marriage for any reason. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. This is from the same book of the Bible, Matthew chapter 19, where no-fault divorce is what the Pharisees advocate. Listen to this. Matthew 19, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Do you hear the, the no-fault language, the casual, easy language? Is it, is it okay? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You know what Jesus says? He goes back to Genesis 2. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They say, Jesus, can we divorce for any reason? He says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You know what they then respond back to Jesus? They try to argue Deuteronomy 24. Your law says that we can. But Jesus, the logos, the living word, He's not going to be outsmarted with the Old Testament law. He's not going to allow some bad interpretation to stand. When the Pharisees say, why then did Moses give one a command to give a certificate of divorce? That's their rebuttal to Jesus when he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They say, well, what about Deuteronomy 24? And in Matthew 19, when they quote Deuteronomy 24 back to Jesus, he says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus narrows the path. Jesus knows that even if there was some indecency in the Old Testament... Only hardness of heart would cause somebody to love Deuteronomy 24. I get to get out of this marriage now. And Jesus helps them see that. Only a hard heart would run happily towards divorce. Whenever Jesus was asked about the question regarding divorce, he always upheld the sanctity of marriage. Before we look at point two, why is Jesus being so eager and bold and, and sharp with his words about marriage and divorce? Why does Jesus make such a big deal about marriage? Why is divorce spoken of in such bad terms in the Old Testament and in the New? Well, behind the strife and the emotional pain, the agony of divorce, behind the time behind the financial cost, behind the way 
how it distorts family and fractures things within a family. Behind all these things, there's an even larger reason. It's because divorce grieves God. Divorce distorts and warps the picture of what marriage is meant to represent. The Bible cover to cover bears witness to this. Human marriage is intended to reflect the covenantal relationship between God and his people, Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 tells us this. Isaiah 54 talks about your husband is your maker. God is talked about as being father in the Old Testament. He's also talked about being husband. Jeremiah 2, even Revelation 19 talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21, the bride says, come quickly, Lord. So whether it's Genesis or Revelation or the Mosaic Law or the Old Testament prophets or Jesus himself or New Testament teaching, there is this overwhelming idea that marriage represents God's covenant love with his people. Marriage is this mini drama, this mini living picture of what it's like for God to be joined with his people. Isn't it beautiful when a couple is married and the marriage is healthy and the marriage is strong and the marriage lasts for decades? I feel sad that some of you have probably never seen a good marriage up close. You've seen them from a distance. I want to encourage you, if you see any good marriages around you, thank those couples because there's no perfect marriage. Every marriage is hard and difficult. Thank those couples. And whether you're single, married, widowed, divorced, happily married, whatever situation you're in, it's good and right to draw near to other marriages that are healthy and talk to them about their joy in marriage. And let that boomerang your mind to think about how the good things they're talking about are a, a foretaste, a picture of what it is for the Christian to be wed to the Lord. This reminds us that the way we began our service this morning when Sam Echeverria was leading the service. Did you hear him say in his, his opening remarks in his prayer that we praise God because he's the perfect loving husband forgiving his bride? You see, the scriptures say that, that we, his people, are, are wayward, all of us. All of us have gone our own way and been unfaithful to the Lord. His designs have seemed optional for us. Maybe, maybe I'll go with my design. Because God is good, whenever we've chosen to go our own way, whether that's in morality, whether that's in how we treat people or possessions or things, namely God himself, the ways that we rebel against God in the scriptures, our idolatry of giving our heart to created things instead of him is spoken of as adultery. And God will punish wrongdoing and sin. He will cast away the one who would try to make him unclean. But also in his love, he invites those who are unclean to be forgiven and be cleansed 
and be united to him. That happens with repentance and faith. I want to invite you today and urge you today, if you don't know Christ, you can know him not just as your maker, but as your your husband. You can know him as the one that you are wed to. You are united by faith. And that's a good thing because if you are united to Christ by faith, you are shielded from the wrath of God. You are forgiven from your sins. You are made clean and new. You grow in knowing him and in sanctification. And God did all that through a demonstration of the cross. He sent Christ to come and bear the sins of his wayward people. And by his blood, he wins a bride. And by his resurrection, he proves that his word to his bride is true. Do you know that covenant relationship with the Lord? Are you in covenant with the Lord today? Marriage is important, but that covenant marriage between God and his people is even more fundamental than the temporary marriages that are around us right now. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Enjoy that covenant. The story of God's love, the the wedding that the scripture speaks of from Genesis to Revelation is a marriage supper that you can be invited to. You are invited, but you can't come to that wedding thinking, I'm not going to repent of sin. Turn from your sin. Be united to Christ. Be a part of God's design for marriage. For you to not love the Lord is for you to forsake the greatest marriage that's ever been invented and designed because the marriage God invites you to be a part of between him and himself is a marriage that never ends. It gets better and better for all eternity, and it never ends. It's a bond that's never severed. I pray that you will look to that marriage bond today, the bond of Christ. Well, let's close our time today thinking about this second truth. This is a brief one. It's not as lengthy because it doesn't have quotes of Old Testament law in it like the first section. This is the second truth that we see from the Sermon on the Mount here. It's this. Illegitimate divorce is not a solution. Rather, it incites more sin. We see this. Put your eyes on verse 32 of Matthew 5. Verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If that sounds confusing to you, take out the exception clause for a moment and then put it back. Don't, don't take it out and leave it out. But if we take out the exception clause, it, Jesus is saying, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. With the exception clause, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. That's the legitimate sphere that would actually make divorce possible. Again, we see here that any statement of divorce, any bill of divorce, doesn't just automatically dissolve marriage. Divorce is not a solution because Jesus just said there, if anyone divorces his wife, that's leading to them making her commit adultery and this other person who would remarry that person. 
We know this to be true that in the first century, it would be extremely difficult for a formerly married woman to make it on her own if she was cast out. In first century Judaism, to survive economically or socially without being married, that would almost be like a physical death sentence. So the assumption here in in 532 that a divorced woman would likely get married, Jesus is talking about what was normative. And what he's saying here is not some unfair burden put on the woman. You're you're making her commit adultery, so pity her because she's going to commit adultery. Jesus is actually pointing back at the perpetrator, and he's saying, you are putting an unfair burden on this wife that you've cast out. And Jesus is punishing the perpetrator, the offending spouse, by making them realize their guilt in the situation that they have put them in. In one sense, it's true, yes, we can't make anyone else sin. Satan couldn't even make Adam and Eve sin in the garden. But what we can do is we can cause others to stumble. We can set it up so they might stumble. We can encourage and entice and heap upon the temptation for someone else to sin. And Jesus is saying, watch out. If you, if you think divorce is okay, you have just created a horrible situation that's going to tempt someone else to sin if your divorce was not legitimate. So we haven't said it yet. We've kind of danced around it. What, what would the Bible say is legitimate grounds for a divorce? Some of you who know your Bibles well know that beyond even sexual immorality, there might be something else that could dissolve the bonds of marriage. Is Jesus just misinformed here? Is he forgetting? No. Jesus is mainly here just attacking the the primary ways people think about divorce. And he attacks the primary way that marriage could be severed. It was without question that if a spouse dies, the marriage bond is severed. And the scriptures teach really three things that could dissolve the marriage bond. The death of a spouse, an unbeliever who's married to a believer that deserts that believer and desertion runs off. So death of a spouse, unbeliever desertion, and sexual immorality. And without getting into all the nuances, here's the way we could summarize that by Scripture. Romans 7, verses 1 and 2 say, The law is binding on a person as long as they live, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Unbeliever desertion. This is a very rare scenario, by the way. The Apostle Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians 7. There were some in the Corinthian church asking Paul questions and peppering him. Hey, hey, Paul, should I divorce and get rid of my spouse? They're, they're not a Christian. Should I leave them right now? Because you said earlier in your teaching, Paul, that we shouldn't be unequally yoked. A Christian should be married to a Christian. Shouldn't I just leave and get out? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, If any brother who has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So Paul is not giving a blanket statement for divorce. Most likely what would happen if two unbelievers are are going about their lives and one of them becomes a Christian 
All of a sudden, it's this rare situation where only one spouse knows the Lord. And if the other spouse who doesn't know the Lord, for some reason, cast off and rejects that marriage, Paul says in 7.15, 1 Corinthians 7.15, if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So the tie and bond of marriage is only broken or dissolved in very, very, very specific ways in Scripture. Death of a spouse or when suddenly two people are married and only one of them becomes a Christian and then the non-Christian flees and deserts the other spouse or sexual immorality. Those are the only things that that can attack the one flesh union of marriage in such a way where, where divorce becomes permissible by Scripture. And here, Jesus is teaching the main reason that divorce is talked about, sexual immorality. He's saying that that can be a legitimate reason. Those who take divorce lightly and see it as a solution, they set themselves on adulterous paths, according to verse 32 here. Consider that those listening to the Sermon on the Mount would have already been urged away from divorce even in the opening Beatitudes. I like how John Chrysostom, a a pastor from the fourth century, said this, How can one who is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit and merciful cast out his spouse? How can one who reconciles be alienated from her that which is his own? The entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is, is about holiness and how we live. And Jesus doesn't want any illegitimate grounds for divorce to swirl around and settle in someone's mind and heart and cause them to act out upon it because of what he says here. That would lead you into the path of adultery. So let's let's end our time today with a few applications. Just a few, and we'll close our time. How do we go about from this place and do something about what Jesus said here I mean, do we just wait around for somebody who says, I'm thinking about getting a divorce, and then we attack and we swoop in with with harsh words? No, there's actually a lot of application that flows from these principles. If you keep firmly in your mind the true principles that come here, that legitimate divorce is not a wide path, it's narrow, and illegitimate divorce is never a solution, it just incites and leads to more sin. If you can keep those two clear principles in mind, You know what it will cause you to do? Here's a few things. It'll cause you to be disliked in your views for marriage. It'll cause you to actually start living out Matthew 5.13 where you are salt and light in the world. Because the world's going to hate that view that you take that is the view of Jesus. But by taking that view, you can preserve the bad thinking and the decay around you. You can be salt and light. One of the ways to apply this passage comes into play when there is wedding planning. Whether this is somebody getting married for the first time, an engaged couple, or there's some remarriage in view, this passage encourages prudent wedding planning, not in what color the wedding dresses will be of the bridesmaids and and what time the wedding is, but it encourages careful wedding planning in the form of discussion. Couples who are, are pursuing marriage should talk about Divorce and divorce convictions. 
Proverbs 20, 25 says, it's a snare to rashly say, it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. Another way to apply this passage is for married couples. Again, thank you for not giving up when it's hard. There are no perfect couples. Even though you received marriage as a gift and you cherish it, and you're fighting in a good way for your marriage to cultivate it, this passage encourages us to not stand and be arrogant in such a way where we think, if my marriage is good, divorce is never going to tempt me. This passage encourages us to realize that we should pray and watch against temptation. Specifically, it gets down to the gritty level of this. Husbands and wives... All husbands and wives, look up here for a moment. Husbands and wives, don't ever joke about divorce. Don't keep divorce on the shelf of the options that you would use in a verbal argument just to make your point stronger. Don't try to express your anger by acting like divorce is some category you're going to throw out on a whim. Don't do that. It's demonic to do that. It's contrary to how a kingdom citizen should think and talk and act. We can apply this passage in many ways. Another application would be in our entertainment choices. Are you happy to side with the character in that show or movie that you're watching, that character who tramples all over Jesus' words here? Divorce is portrayed by Hollywood and even some Christian movies as no big deal. Let the bar of morality be set by Jesus, not some movie script. Again, Proverbs 4 tells us, guard your heart, it's the wellspring of life. Be careful what your entertainment choices are are teaching you about marriage and divorce. Encourage, another application, encourage reconciliation, even when divorce is biblically permissible. With the hope and power of the gospel, pray. Pray for marriages that are struggling. Pray for those trying to reconcile in situations where divorce is permissible. Encourage others never to initiate a divorce. All the while, seek to care for those around you. Consider their safety and well-being. Report abuse. Go with them. Help them report cases of abuse that would harm health to local authorities and your, your church family. Encourage reconciliation and repentance. And don't let somebody tell you that a temporary separation is the same thing as divorce. Be wise in your strategies of how to come alongside and care for others. Final application or so. A person who has remarried, maybe today you're thinking, I've remarried. Am I supposed to get out of my marriage right now? If I I was divorced earlier in life and it was unbiblical, and I didn't have grounds for a divorce, am I supposed to just hop out of the marriage I'm in now? Well, we can apply this passage by realizing that if someone becomes aware of their sin of remarrying, they shouldn't divorce their present spouse in order to reunite with their former spouse. They shouldn't have false guilt of thinking that it's perennial adultery in their remarriage. They should think, though, that their marriage began with adultery that they did damage their previous marriage bond. And because they weren't reunited with their spouse the moment they committed adultery, 
because they continued in that second marriage? Adultery was, yes, at the beginning. But the scriptures teach in different places that they're now together. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about uh, being one flesh with somebody through sexual activity. This is a difficult passage, difficult topics, but I pray you would take to heart these things. God knows all things. If you are on the bitter end of a difficult divorce in your past or present, or you're encouraging someone who's been in a divorce situation, remember Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God sees and knows all of what happens in, in marriages, even behind the scenes. We should honor marriage. The gift of marriage will be under attack. And when marriage bonds are severed, there are few things that could ever rival that pain and emptiness. But through pain and through the pleasure of good marriages, let all of that Put your eyes on the marriage that never ends between Christ and his bride. May that be the marriage you're trusting in most and hoping in. Let's pray.